This is Shakespeare on Bard, the podcast where I try to get you excited about Shakespeare one play at a time. Today, Shakespeare takes on the ancient Greeks. It's time for Troilus and Cressida. In Troy, there lies the scene. From Isles of Greece, the princes Augulus, their high blood chafed. Adventus Troilus, there's a man niece, him, brave Troilus, the prince of chivalry. Peace! All lovers swear more performance than they are able, and yet reserve an ability that they never perform, vowing more than the perfection of ten, and discharging less than the tenth part of one. Oh, foolish Cressid. I might have still held off, and then you would have tarried. Thou must to thy father, and be gone from Troilus. It will be his death, it will be his vein, he cannot bear it. Here, Diomed. Keep this sleeve. Oh, beauty, where is thy faith? Alright, as always, we're going to start with a short summary. How short? This is Troilus and Cressida. In one minute. Siri, start the timer for one minute. Done. I see you shiver with anticipation. All is rotten in ancient Greece. The Trojan War rages, but Troilus, the Prince of Priam, is more interested in his lust for Cressida, niece to the body Pandarus. Troilus begs Pandarus to help him woo Cressida, but Pandarus refuses, only to change his mind in the very next scene. Meanwhile, the Greeks are arguing about the ongoing war, and more importantly, the arrogance of Achilles. A challenge arrives from Hector, the Trojan warrior, who challenges the Greeks to present a champion to fight in single combat. The Trojans are also arguing over how to end the war, but Troilus is still more interested in Cressida. Fortunately, she's now interested in him too, and they soon consummate their love. Little do they know that Cressida's father has been negotiating a prisoner exchange, and that Cressida is going to be given to the Greek Diomedes. As part of the deal, Troilus and Cressida bid farewell and pledge fidelity. Later, Troilus sneaks into the Greek camp and observes Cressida giving Troilus' love token to Diomedes. Troilus vows to kill Diomedes. Despite Hector's promise to kill, fight in single combat, a great battle breaks out and Hector is killed by Achilles. Troilus fails to kill Diomedes, shuns Pandarus, and returns to the Trojans, and the Trojan War presumably lasts for another few years. It's hard not to applaud Shakespeare for the audacity that is Troilus and Cressida. To form his play, he had to fuse Greek mythology with a medieval love story, which is sort of like trying to mash Peter Pan with The Lord of the Rings. That this collision of two literary universes doesn't really work is hardly the point. There still remains something wildly inventive about the attempt. Still, people don't go to the theater just to applaud people for trying to put on a good play, and Troilus and Cressida remains a difficult text whose cynical and unhappy story seems to mark Shakespeare's turn towards the darker themes that would mark the rest of his career. Despite the inclusion of the word tragedy in the play's title, the piece defies an easy label, alternating between history, myth, satire, and, dare I say it, romantic comedy. Like Twelfth Night, which he wrote around the same time, the play has two plots that only briefly intersect. Like Twelfth Night, both stories echo elements of the play's theme. Here, Shakespeare's primary concern is lust, both in sex and in war. By shoehorning a medieval love story into Greek mythology, Shakespeare allows each to be a metaphor for the other. This alignment of sex and violence makes complete sense when one considers the setting is the Trojan War, a ten-year battle begun because one man ran off with another man's wife. Troilus wants glory in the bedroom, and the soldiers want it on the field. A slave to their desires, they all end up worse off in the end. In every scene, the men wrestle for domination over one another, whether they're negotiating a prisoner exchange or arguing over whether the stolen Helen should stay in Troy. As for Troilus, he achieves his glory in the bedroom only to lose it on the battlefield. He wins Cressida, but is unable to avenge what he sees as her infidelity. Virile in love, he is impotent in war. 
There were plenty of parallels between Troilus and Cressida and that other play of doomed lovers, Romeo and Juliet. Just as Romeo enters his play in love with Rosalind, so too does Troilus swagger onto stage and announce he is a man in lust. He's too polite to call it that, of course, and plays the swooning lover as he begs Cressida's uncle Pandarus to woo her on his behalf. Oh, Pandarus! I tell thee, Pandarus, when I do tell thee, there my hopes lie drowned, reply not in how many fathoms deep they lie in drench. I tell thee I am mad in Cressid's love. Thou answerest, she is fair. Paused in the open ulcer of my heart, her eyes, her hair, her cheek, her gait, her voice, handless in thy discourse. Oh, that her hand, in whose comparison all whites are ink, writing their own reproach, to whose soft seizure the signet's down is harsh, and spirit of sense hard as the palm of ploughman. This thou tell'st me, as true thou tell'st me, when I say I love her. But saying thus, instead of oil and balm, thou layest in every gash that love hath given me the knife that made it. Ice. Pandora says he wants nothing to do with the scheme, and yet sometime between now and scene two, he changes his mind. The only explanation is that despite whatever the stage directions tell us, Pandarus and Troilus are not alone on stage when Troilus pleads for Pandarus's help. Troilus is a prince, after all, and Cressida is the daughter of a priest. In any case, soon enough we get a parade of soldiers, all of whom are dismissed by Pandarus as being unworthy when compared to Troilus. This scene introduces us to the panoply of Trojan heroes, who parade their masculine virility. Marching by Cressida, and presumably a larger crowd, they flaunt their youth and strength. What follows for much of the play is a dramatization of this desire among the male soldiers to make their conquests. While Troilus conquests in love, everyone else tries to make conquests in politics and war. Cressida, it should be said, displays the same caution regarding men that Rosalind showed in As You Like It. Though she is intrigued by Troilus, she knows enough to be careful in how she proceeds. Words, vows, gifts, tears, and love's full sacrifice he offers in another's enterprise. But more in Troilus thousandfold I see than in the glass of Panda's praise may be. Yet hold I off. Women are angels wooing. Things won are done. Joy's soul lies in the doing. That she, beloved, knows naught that knows not this. Men prize the thing ungained more than it is. That she was never yet that ever knew love got so sweet as when desire did sue. Therefore, this maxim out of love I teach. Achievement is command, ungained beseech. Then, though my heart's content firm love doth bear, Nothing of that shall from mine eyes appear. Troilus, meanwhile, shows equal insight when it comes to relations between the sexes. Oh, let my lady apprehend no fear. In all Cupid's pageant there is presented no monster. Nor nothing monstrous neither. Nothing but our undertakings when we vow to weep seas, live in fire, eat rocks, tame tigers, thinking it harder for our mistress to devise imposition enough than for us to undergo any difficulty imposed. This is the monstruosity in love, lady, that the will is infinite and the execution confined, that the desire is boundless and the act a slave to limit. 
The lovers are eventually brought together in secret by Pandarus, just as Romeo and Juliet are brought together in secret by Friar Lawrence. But where Friar made sure to marry his secret lovers, Pandarus just supplies them with a locked room and a bed. Both plays, however, feature a scene depicting the morning after the consummation of love. Juliet finds that Romeo is loath to leave her arms. Cressida finds that she can't quite keep Troilus anywhere near hers. Dear, trouble not yourself. The morn is cold. Then, sweet my lord, I'll call mine uncle down. He shall unbolt the gates. Mm. Trouble him not. To bed. To bed. Sleep kill those pretty eyes and give a soft attachment to thy senses as infants empty of all thought. Good morrow, then. I prithee now to bed. Are you aweary of me? Oh, Cressida, but that the busy day, waked by the lark, hath roused the ribald crows, and dreaming night will hide our joys no longer, I would not from thee. Night hath been too brief. The shrew the witch. With venomous whites she stays as tediously as hell, but flies the grasps of love with wings more momentary swift than thought. Mm, you'll catch cold and curse me. Oh, prithee, tarry. You men will never tarry. Oh, foolish Cressid. I might have still held off, and then you would have tarried. There's an old song with music by George Gershwin, whose title might as well be a refrain in the supposed love story of Troilus and Cressida. When you want him, you can't have him, and when you got him, you don't want him. Shakespeare has rarely been this perceptive when discussing the office of love. Having made his conquest, Troilus has lost interest. It is the very waning of affection that Cressida, and Rosalind before her, knew would befall all men once they had satiated their love. Immediately after this, Cressida learns she is to be given to Diomedes as part of a prisoner exchange. Again, we are in Romeo and Juliet territory. Here are the lovers to be separated by what is essentially an arranged marriage. Juliet railed against her fate, and so too does Cressida. Oh, you immortal gods. I will not go. Thou must! I will not, uncle. I have forgot my father. I know no touch of consanguinity. No kin, no love, no blood, no soul so near me as the sweet Troilus. Oh, you gods divine! Make Cressid's name the very crown of falsehood if ever she leave Troilus. Time, force, and death, do to this body what extremes you can. But the strong base and building of my love is as the very centre of the earth, drawing all things to it. I'll go in and weep. Do, do. Tear my bright hair and scratch my praised cheeks. Crack my clear voice with sobs and break my heart with sounding Troilus. I will not go from Troy. A few moments later, Troilus comes to say goodbye, and his attitude is much different than it was before Cressida was to be given away. When you want him, you can't have him, but the moment they are to be given away, the moment you lose them, is the moment you suddenly want them again. I must then to the Grecians. No remedy. A woeful Cressid amongst the merry Greeks. Oh, when shall we see again? Hear me, love. Be thou but true of heart. I true? How now? What wicked deem is this? Nay, we must use expostulation kindly, for it is parting from us. I speak not, be thou true, as fearing thee, for I will throw my glove to death himself, that there's no maculation in thy heart. 
But be thou true, say I, to fashion in my sequent protestation. Be thou true, and I will see thee. Oh, you shall be exposed, my lord, to dangers as infinite as imminent. But I'll be true. And I'll grow friend with danger. Romeo and Juliet plotted to escape together, but Troilus plots only to sneak into the enemy camp and have sex with Cressida under the cover of darkness. This is, of course, what leads him to witness Cressida flirt with Diomedes. Or does she? See, the scene is fairly ambiguous and could be interpreted differently depending on how it's played. Cressida is a prisoner in the camp, and though she wants to stay loyal to Troilus, she must know that Diomedes will most likely do what he wants with her. In the interest of self-protection, she has little choice but to placate the Greek. I shall have it. What's this? Aye, that. Oh, all you gods. Oh, pretty, pretty pledge. Mm, thy master now lies thinking in his bed of thee and me, and sighs and takes my glove and gives memorial dainty kisses to it as I kiss thee. Ha. Nay, do not snatch it from me. He that takes that doth take my heart withal. I had your heart before. This follows it. I did swear, patience. You shall not have it, Diomed. Faith, you shall not. I'll give you something else. I will have this. Whose was it? It is no matter. Come. Tell me whose it was. It was ones that loved me better than you will. But now you have it. Take it. Troilus doesn't care much about context, he sees what he wants to see. It's not surprising that Troilus would suspect Cressida, of course. This is the Trojan War, after all, a war, as I've said, that was born out of adultery. Helen ran off with Troilus's brother Paris, so why shouldn't Cressida prove to be equally untrue? Troilus is subsequently humiliated on the battlefield. Though he attacks Diomedes, he fails to avenge the wrong he thinks he suffered. In the end, there's something really pathetic about poor Troilus, who lacks any sort of conviction or moral center to make him a character an audience can truly care about. He believes the worst about Cressida, and so brings out the worst in himself. Cressida, meanwhile, is superior to him, if only because she at least tries to maintain her dignity throughout the play. With the exception of Cassandra and Helen, who are so minor as to be almost unimportant, Cressida is the only female character in this piece, making her alone in a world of men who barter, trade, and use her for their own ends. She disappears after a scene with Diomedes, having no place in the violence that takes up the last few scenes of the play. The bloodlust fills the stage, and the men swing their swords and attempt to showcase their virility, all with varying results. Troilus and Cressida is not a great play, and it's hard to even argue that it's a good one. There's no definitive proof that it was ever staged in Shakespeare's lifetime, or indeed any time before the 20th century. I suspect that Shakespeare would have preferred if the play was never staged at all. It reads like a first draft, an experimental collection of intriguing ideas that never had the chance to be distilled into a stronger, cohesive text. Even so, I remain somewhat fascinated by the ambition of Troilus and Cressida, not to mention its moral ambiguity. For all its problems as a play, and there are many, the play has also some unique commentary on masculinity, especially given it was written at the end of the 16th century. It is a play about Greek heroes in which no one is very heroic. It reduces men to nothing but petty braggarts, grasping for acclaim at any cost. And now comes the part of the podcast where I talk about film versions of the play I've discussed. 
Lovers of Troilus and Cressida, uh, assuming there are any, don't have much to choose from other than the 1981 version made by the BBC. This version, directed by Jonathan Miller, was part of the BBC's project to film all of Shakespeare's plays for television. Their success means there will always be at least one production for the Shakespeare devotee to view. It's not a bad production, but it really is a slow-moving one. Most of these versions have a languid air to them that can prove difficult, especially in a play that is already slow on dramatic action. That being said, it remains a faithful production that presents the entire text, and the actors do a fine job, especially young Anton Lesser, who appears here as Troilus, and will return many, many years later as Exeter in the BBC's Hollow Crown. My other advice would be to return to the Archangel recordings, which I've mentioned before, and which remain a great source for Shakespeare fans looking for productions of his less popular work. Like the BBC, Archangel undertook a project of dramatizing all of Shakespeare's work, and their production of Troilus and Cressida has much more spark and energy than the BBC's version. Audio drama, I think, is a really good medium for Shakespeare, because it forces the production to rely solely on the text, rather than ambitious directorial interpretations. It also allows listeners to slow down the text or easily replay a scene if need be. This particular recording, like all of Archangel's material, is top-notch, and since you're unlikely to see a production of Troilus and Cressida in your neighborhood anytime soon, it's probably your best bet. As always, I'll leave links to everything I've discussed on the show page. That's it for this episode of Shakespeare on Bard. Next up, the play where one of my favorite heroines gets ruined in the fifth act. It's time for Measure for Measure. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. If you've enjoyed this podcast and want to know more about the things I do with my time, please visit www.joelfishbane.net. You can find all the episodes of Shakespeare on Bard, as well as information about how to get your hands on my book, The Thunder of Giants. Available from St. Martin's Press, it's about two eight-foot-tall women who struggle to survive in a world too small to contain them. Please buy it, preferably at full price. Thanks for listening to Shakespeare on Bard. 24 plays down, 14 to go. Will Shakespeare as a play? Let's go and cough through it. <laughs>